Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It is July the 5th, 2022. We live clearly in an age of epidemics, of COVID, of gun violence. But perhaps above all else, and we've talked about this a lot in the show, a digital fever of fake news, of false news, of false information, or that's at least what many people argue. Now, an interesting piece in the New York Times today, not all their stuff is interesting, but this one I, I was intrigued with on conservative radio, um, uh, the misleading message of conservative radio, and radio, of course, being a very old-fashioned medium, is that Democrats cheat. Um, and uh, the piece spoke of a number of different radio shows, very traditional media. Uh, Carol Ross, the host of The Ross Report, Charlie James uh, from... 106.3 word, and of course, Stephen Bannon, supposedly a digital guru who has his own radio station, WJFN in West Virginia, all saying the same thing that Joe Biden cheats. Maybe that's a lie, but what's interesting to me is it's all being articulated on traditional media, on radio, which of course had been the medium in particular for the first wave of totalitarian uh, lies in the early part of the 20th century. So uh, I'm intrigued to imagine how radio fits into our digital fever. We have the author, indeed, of Digital Fever, Bernard Perkson, um, uh, a leading European academic from the University of Tübingen. Uh, he has an important book, Digital Fever, Taming the Big Business of Disinformation, which is translated from the German. It's a classic in Germany, and it's joining a, a shelf full of books on the problems with digital technology. Uh, Bernard is joining us from Tübingen in Germany. Bernard, uh, what, what would you make of skeptics who will say, well, it's all very well talking about digital fever and digital technology and the internet and all the rest of it, but actually, a lot of the, the misinformation, the disinformation, the lies in the contemporary age is being still distributed on traditional uh, media platforms like radio and, of course, television. I would say, of course, that's true, that we still have the old media. We still have television. We still have radio. We still have people trying to propagate misleading ideas via this very old media. But of course, this occurs in a totally new media environment. So it occurs in a whole net of feedback of, so to speak, a cybernetics of outrage, you could say. And they are self-affirming themselves all the time and, and get more and more power by links, by um, taking their messages up and quoting them and uh, resending them and retransmitting them. So the new thing is, or the new perspective, the new paradigm is that there is a whole net of interrelated connections that you really could say 
that there are these old media, of course, we still have these media democracy centered around powerful media structures, but it occurs in a whole new net and a whole new media environment. And uh, this strengthens the message, this um, ruins our communication climate. This, as to quote the so-called digital guru, as you called him, Steve Bannon, this is flooding the zone with shit in, in an extreme form. Uh, Bernard, you use the term cybernetics of outrage. Um, it's a technical term, outrage perhaps less so, but certainly cybernetics. I'd like you to talk a little bit about that. And The world has always been outraged. People always seem to be angry. It always seems perhaps as if we're angrier at the present moment than we've ever been in history. So I'm curious as to your take on whether that's true whether the culture of outrage is more pronounced in the 2020s than it's ever been. And is that being created by digital media? Or is digital media the consequence of that? Or is it actually hard to separate the, uh, the horse from, uh, from what it's uh, carrying so that the cause and effect are, are hard to separate? The horse, would, the cart. I would say it's hard to separate cause and effect, but and it's hard to tell whether there was more outrage uh, in earlier times. But the new dimension is that this outrage is visible, and that it can be seen, and that others are picking it up and playing with it, so to speak, in an endless circle of feedback loop. A loop. It's a loop, isn't it, Bernard? Yeah, yeah, it's, it's, it's a permanent loop. And this and that's what um, cybernetics is. It's the science of looping. Yeah, absolutely. I would say that the central idea of cybernetics is circular causality. And uh, if you go in this right-wing uh, sphere of right-wing television, right-wing radio, and so on, you are immediately in this atmosphere of cybernetic um, causality. They're picking it up, they're strengthening it, they're re-quoting it, they're taking it as a source, they're taking the fact that they have quoted it as a, as a, um, as a um, proof for, for their truth. So this is, I would say, the, the new situation, the enormous visibility of outrage. And under digital conditions, we are forced, so to speak, in a direct neighborhood of diverging opinions. And we live in a time of um, permanent collisions and conflicts of different views, of different realities, of different was um, ideologies, large and small. I, I'm not, and then I've, I've had my say in this area too. I, I'm not convinced this is particularly new, but let's go back to your wonderful term, the cybernetics of outrage. The man who invented uh, the science of cybernetics was, of course, the MIT um, technologist Norbert Wiener. Yes. And he was also one of the fathers of the internet. I wrote a book in which I, I traced the history of the internet and in the earliest chapter on that, I, I talked about Wiener. In, in your view, um, 
is or are the cybernetics of outrage built into the very architecture of digital society, of the internet? Was it almost inevitable? And I know that's a dangerous word for thinkers like yourself, but was it almost inevitable that we would get this once Wiener and Bush and the other fathers of the internet built this thing out of the the technology of the military-industrial complex of the 1940s and 50s? I, I would not draw this direct line, so to speak. I take the ideas uh, of cybernetics more as a particular paradigm to talk about a certain form of causality, which is circular causality. And I had the luck to, to write my very first book with a cybernetician. He was called Heinz von Förster, and he was... Um, the secretary of the so-called Macy conferences, where this term, um, where this term cybernetics started his its career, so to speak, and where it became popular. So I I'm not coming from the technical side, and I don't uh, agree that, so to speak, that technology has its own telos, its own force, and if you have a uh, technology coming from the military, inevitably it will lead to the situation we have now. And I see the situation we have now as extremely ambivalent. We have, so to speak, a paradox of um, in, embedded in our current communication world. On the one hand, a gigantic openness. Everyone can join, that we can now talk, that we can now discuss all these ideas is a is a very wonderful uh, moment in media history. And on the other hand, we have um, very few, way powerful players, platform entrepreneurs who accumulate a huge amount of wealth and who as hidden gatekeepers regulate the information stream of uh, millions of people on the world. So I would say that our situation is not at all linear, that you cannot uh, draw these direct lines and that we have an extreme ambivalence. And we, as individuals, I would say, are now in the particular situation that we are media empowered, that we can use media without hindrance, without barrier. That, uh, um, But on the other hand, the problem is that we are not media mature. And I see this as the central, central task we have to address. How do we get out of this uh, situation of digital puberty towards a more media mature society? That's that's the question I'm running around with. It's a great question. It's one we're all asking ourselves. How do we get from, as you put it, Bernard, digital puberty to digital adulthood? How can we get from being children to adults to grown-ups. Um, yes. The subtitle of your book is Taming the Big Business of Disinformation. You suggested that there was nothing inevitable built into the architecture of the network society built by scientists like Norbert Wiener, Vannevar Bush, and others after the Second World War, during the Second World War. Do you see then, given the subtitle of your book, Taming the Big Business of Disinformation, do you see the key moment in terms of the unfolding of digital fever is being in the early 1990s when the internet was commercialized and it enabled the rise of big business companies like Google and Facebook and Amazon 
I saw a piece earlier today in the Times that the cloud now is dominated by Microsoft, by Google, by Amazon. It's an increasingly winner-take-all economy. Is, is, is the problem big business, uh, uh, Bernard? Is it business or is it all business? Yeah, the problem is big business, I would say. If you study, for instance, the early online communities, I know that you know a lot about this. Think, for instance, of an online community like The Well, where all these computer hippies came together, these early cyber libertarians. Yeah, we, we did a people. show, actually, about Stuart Brand with John Markov. Uh, yeah, yeah. I have, Stuart Brand I have, being the, the father of The Well. It didn't end very well. I think he has rather bitter memories of it. Yes, but, but still, what is interesting, if you study these first online communities, they clearly had, and this was the smartness of people like Stuart Brand or Lay Brilliant who founded the well, they clearly had a different business model. They had moderators, they were very small, they were rather culturally similar. Um, there was now data mining, there was now advertisement, there was now um, throwing people in front of the bus in order to, to gain profits. And that's the extreme opposite. I would say someone like Mark Zuckerberg uh, uses the rhetoric, reuses the vocabulary um, of the people who were joining the well, but he uses this vocabulary in order to hide essentially greed, extreme greed. And uh, he wrote, for instance, a manifesto in 2017, a year when the first QAnon, QAnon groups were founded on Facebook, a year where they did not, from Facebook, find time um, to really delete all the hateful attacks on the Rohingya at a moment where, um, um, as you know, Donald Trump was becoming president, a moment where they were getting gains of uh, $9 billion. Uh, and at this moment, uh, Mark Zuckerberg wrote this manifesto using essentially the rhetoric of these old and very idealistic hippies. And I would say that's, that's, that's a kind of a masquerade, that's hiding. And this is the, the connection. I think they had very different ideas, very different ideals. And they had a different organization of self-organization, so to speak, in, their, in, in the earlier uh, online communities like The Well. But now it has changed because it has become such a very, very... Um, such a business being but ruled by Bernard, I take your point. I've made this argument. Many other people have made this argument. But in terms of your metaphorical narrative of yeah. getting from digital puberty to digital yeah. adulthood, it's almost as if you're suggesting that we need to go back into the womb. We can't go back to the well, for better or worse. Mm -hmm. and, and I take your point. There were some there were some benefits. There was an attractive quality, but there were a few thousand people online back then. Yes. It was just Stuart Brand and his friends. Everything was yeah. bound to be civilized when Stuart was running the show. And even then, people got angry with Stuart, and he ran off and has bad. He actually his... left the world. So how, how can we? So but, but coming back to your Stuart. your your point about growing up, um, isn't it? Aren't you suggesting we go back to the womb? The, the reality of the Web 2.0 age is it's ending now. I mean, you talk about Mark Zuckerberg. He may be history. He's retreated into the metaverse because Facebook has such bad PR. 
mm-hmm. and it's become increasingly unpopular amongst young people. So coming back to your point about growing up, how do we grow up? We can't, we can't go back. We have to go forward, don't we? Yes, that's, that's correct. And I have a, uh, my own, so to speak, educational utopia on this path of growing up. And I would say that we must develop the digital society in which we are living now into an editorial society of the future. What is, you will of course ask, an editorial society? It's a society in which the maxims, the ideals, the program of good journalism, this program has become a basic element of general education. I would say that good journalism is, contains an informed or contains a communication ethic that is relevant for us today. I would say that good journalism embodies a universal ethos, so to speak, a craft and a vision of value-oriented publishing. And if you look at the ideals of good journalism, knowing, of course, that there is a lot of bad journalism, communicate truth oriented check first publish later never rely on a single source always use multiple sources always hear the other side cultivate skeptical thinking and try to keep yourself aware of your own prejudices and blind spots or for instance guide yourself by relevance and proportionality distinguish the important from the unimportant isn't all this obvious bernard everybody knows this and it's not happening i mean you sound like king canute a digital king can you you know your book got blurbed nicely by jay rosen who teaches who's a professor of new uh, journalism at new york university another kind of king canute in this business i mean everybody knows what you're saying is true but it's entirely unrealistic isn't it no i would not agree i would not agree we have not tried it we did not pick up this idea i mean who what can we do we can we can um, retreat into a kind of dystopian worldview. We can um, sit together and hold hands and say the apocalyptic, the apocalypse is coming and it's over, uh, dear friend. But what we could do actually is go into schools and it's actually happening in Germany under the umbrella term of the editorial society. It's very fascinating. Thousands and thousands of journalists are going into German schools and teach pupils, teach students how to detect fake news, how to detect disinformation. So there is a kind of a grassroots movement against disinformation and for more for a more media mature society, which I would call an editorial society. How does so that work? I'm very yeah. curious, Bern, and it, it it makes sense and it's very encouraging. But explain the mechanics of professional German journalists going to German schools to educate the kids about the production and distribution of, um, of, of, of reliable news. Um, yes. how, how, how is this happening? Who's paying them? Who's organizing all this? Yes. There are a lot of initiatives and they get funding from philanthropists, for instance, and also partially from um, institutions which use money from the government and um, some people just do it for free 
And there have been since at least 2019, a lot of initiatives, a lot of groups of journalists coming together. It's one of these initiatives is called uh, Journalism in Schools. And they come together and they organize lectures, they organize a special day of uh, gatherings or um, events. They have a lot of online workshops. They have a lot of, um, so to speak, journalistic stars, which they use in order to get their message across. Because the German system, the German school system, is extremely slow. They don't really react in um, the necessary manner to this media revolution, which we are experiencing. And they don't react in the necessary speed to this amount of disinformation which we now uh, see. Is it having an impact, Bernard? Do you, uh, I mean, it, it sounds like a noble, a noble initiative. It's, a, it's clearly a, yeah. a good cause, journalists going into schools. How are kids responding? Are they taking journalists seriously are they listening is it uh, I, is there any say, evidence that it's yeah. actually impacting not just their use of the internet and of social media but also uh their belief and disbelief in news i mean there have been just very few studies up to now just uh, qualitative case case studies uh, people scientists accompanying these journalists so i cannot give you um uh, really qualified data. But what I know, um, they have been in thousands and thousands of schools. They use, of course, the modern platforms. They are, of course, um, on TikTok uh, and teaching there the young ones how to, for instance, how to cope with the information or the disinformation, which is now coming from Russia. There was recently a study 40 minutes after installing the the app, uh, the TikTok app, 40 minutes after that, you have the first time you have Russian propaganda on uh, TikTok. You see it for the first time. So they're using the modern platforms. They go into schools and they also want to, um, uh, they have a lot, they try to, to do a lot of lobbying, so to speak. They try to influence how the um, teachers are taught. Uh, this is the mo uh, this is the topic they now uh, pick up and they now try to to grab and I think it's a very important uh, movement and I I'm a so to speak a strategic optimist in that in that respect I I really I don't see um, any sense in in being a, a pessimist although pessimists have always very good examples and very good stories and and sometimes. It's just sad and, and horrible if you look at this current world of disinformation, especially if you look at the United States in such a uh, who, which is so polarized and where there is so much hate. And, yeah, I'm uh, curious as whether this can be applied to the United States. You mentioned uh, the, the war in Ukraine. You had an interesting piece uh, in Der Tagspiegel mm -hmm. uh, recently uh, on uh, the implosion of Putin's propaganda machine. You suggest it's inevitable. But we did a show last week uh, with uh, Chris Miller, young expert on Ukraine, who suggests that probably the Russians are now winning the war in Ukraine. They might even be winning the propaganda war. What, what makes you so certain that Putin's propaganda machine will indeed implode? I mean, um, if you look at the interview, I 
referred, of course, um, to the success, so to speak, of the um, Russian narratives in the Western sphere. And with that respect, you can say it will not, it did not work. I mean, who is picking up um, the narratives from, um, from Putin? In your country, think of Fox News and a couple of uh, so-called journalists. And if you think um, uh, of Germany, you find the so-called Querdenker, people who have been against um, all these measurements with regard to uh, Corona politics. So it's really the right wing, it's the lunatic fringe who is now... Uh, well, I, I, I mean, uh, whether they're... they're and and let me just add one question. Uh, let me, just, Sorry, go on. Let me just add one point. I mean, what Putin is trying to do right now could be seen as a horrible media experiment. He wants to produce an, a digital iron curtain. And do you really think that he will be fast enough in shutting all these platforms down? I'm, I'm not fully sure he will win on the long run uh, the information war in his own country, telling people there is no war, telling people that they have to denazify um, Ukraine. That's, that's too much um, craziness in, in one moment. But I meant this idea, or I proposed this idea with regard to the su possible success of the Kremlin narratives in the Western world, and here I would say it's it's totally true. It did not work. We had we had a much uh, larger influence of Russian um, uh, information and disinformation before the war, and now due to um, secret service information, due to um, the networked many in Ukraine presenting counter evidence, due to the genius Zelensky. Um, there is is not much success of of Russian propaganda in in European countries. But let's go back to the the radio example. And the New York Times mm. suggests that conservative radio the there's misleading messages. Essentially, what the New York Times is saying euphemistically is that conservative radio lies. In your fix, when you have these journalists going into schools, if this happened in America. You'd have all these New York Times, Washington Post trained mm -hmm. journalists going into schools, trying to educate kids about, say, the lies of conservative radio. How is this not going to be treated politically? Firstly, it would be hugely controversial in the US. I could see governors of states like Texas and Florida actually banning it and using it to their political advantage. But at, at what point does your initiative about professional journalists going into schools itself become not an antidote to the digital fever, but a piece of it, only creating more problems, more outrage, more anger. Yeah, I think if, if you do it that way, that journalists would go to schools and try to um, educate pupils about how bad uh, the people from Fox News are and how, or if we take, for instance, uh, our German right-wing party, the alternative for Deutschland, that would be fostering the cultural war. You're totally right with that. But um, they go to schools and they 
show tactics and techniques and tools of manipulation. They show the method. So the, the fascinating thing with journalism and the, the program of good journalism is it, it contains a tool to um, come into contact with reality itself, in a sense, or to, to create an atmosphere of cognitive openness. If you take, for instance, the principle, um, um, check if, um, if your mother says she loves you, check it out. It's skepticism. And skepticism is a virtue. And if you apply it, you see more. You see more possibilities. So I, I don't advocate um, that journalists should go to schools and tell people, uh, tell uh, the people there what to think and what to think about a particular uh, political opponent or political party. That would be totally misleading. I, I advocate that they go there and teach the methods in order to find out for yourself what is true and what is not. Bernard, what about redesigning the internet itself? Jonathan Rausch, an old friend of mine, he was actually on the show yesterday talking about American Independence Day. He has an interesting book out, The Constitution of Knowledge, A Defense of Truth. He came on talking about redesigning the internet itself to be friendly to the truth. We've also done a number of shows on trying to figure out ways to create public space on the internet. Uh, are, are you still hopeful that the internet can be re-architected, re-engineered, rethought, so that it I, won't inevitably be um, the source of disinformation, of propaganda, of fake news and lies? I'm not actually sure what he thinks. I have read some of his essays. They were also published in Germany, for instance, at the, in the Spiegel. I have read some of his essays, but I don't know his proposal. Well, what leaving aside uh, Rausch, what do you think? Can can the internet be redesigned, re rearchitected in a fundamental way? Some people believe, for example, that we can go from the Web 2.0 architecture to a Web 3 architecture of peer-to-peer -peer technology, of crypto-style applications, of... Um, uh, decentralized autonomous organizations, DAOs. But how would that solve in any way the problem of disinformation? I don't know. I Good. Well, so, so how do we solve it then? So if, you, if, you, if we can't do it in an architectural sense, we also uh, yeah. did a show with, um, Mori, uh, sorry, with Morris um, uh, Stuckey, um, who um, uh, uh, has a book out called um, uh, Breaking Away, How to Regain Control Over Our Data Privacy and Autonomy. And I think, like you, he's very much in favor of regulation. Um, uh, we, have a, we also did a show with Victor Mayer Schoenberger, an Austrian mm -hmm. digital thinker, has a new book out, Free Access, Freeing Data from Big Tech for a Better Future. Uh, Victor Meyer Schoenberger, Morris Stuckey seem to be in your camp in terms of controlling big tech. Is that the fix, uh, uh, Bernard? I would say, of course, we need regulation. That's very clear. And uh, Germany has proposed some um, stricter forms of regulation. We need, of course, the political debate. 
And we need, of course, education. I would say these are the three pillars which we need. But I'm more in the camp of education. I, I found it really fascinating that um, now everyone has become a transmitter of information and that I want to advocate for a training of what I call editorial consciousness. Thinking like a journalist, not becoming a journalist, but taking journalism as a kind of a cultural technique, uh, a cultural method in order to educate individuals. I'm not fully sure how will they redesign the architecture of the net towards a more truthful society. Wouldn't that clearly mean a form of paternalistic approach? Wouldn't this architect be uh, the self-acclaimed uh, philosopher king, so to speak, um, knowing what is true and what is not? I want to teach methods for people to find out themselves. I take your point, um, but I'm also a little skeptical of education-based solutions. I always joke, and it's not a very funny joke, it's not meant as a funny joke, yeah. that whenever people suggest with all these huge problems that we can fix it through education, they're actually really throwing their hands up and saying, we have no idea of how to fix it. So we're going to shove it into the schools, which already have enough problems of their own. I know that the German school system is healthier, better financed uh, than the US system. So, so, so what would you do in a country like America? where the education system is in such profound crisis. It's one of the, 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 the crumbling pillars of American society, which is contributing to this broader crisis. What do you do in America when education isn't the solution for anything? It's the problem. I would probably run around uh, and visit the early computer hippies, talking to Lee Felsenstein and ask him, how can you inspire a grassroots movement towards media majority. Probably you're right that uh, the education system is not um, fit for this uh, solution in the United States as you have so much financial problems, so much underfinancing. But I would probably think how can we um, get, so to speak, a grassroots movement going where people try to teach themselves where it becomes fascinating to think about disinformation and where you use, for instance, games or other incentives in order to create this editorial consciousness. And we have a couple of very fascinating um, studies that these, um, these, form, these forms of, or these, these attempts to fight disinformation are actually working, that computer games are helpful, that this um, teaching about the techniques of manipulation are actually helpful. But how do you get them in a system which is essentially or partially broken? I don't know. So I would, I would probably try to inspire people to do it like they do it here, get thought leaders, writers, artists, people who have this idealistic approach and, and try to invent a method so it becomes very interesting to think about that problem of disinformation. Well, the Stanford historian Fred Turner wrote a very good book from cyberspace to counterculture, explaining that uh, the technology, the 
digital technology, the internet came out of the counterculture of Northern California. Bernard Perkson is suggesting we go back to that counterculture. To... No, I think I, I don't. Well, you're I'm saying not... you talk to hippies. I'm not sure that's necessarily. I, I just don't I, think I, it's I very realistic, that... Bernard. I'm I'm not not uh, advocating to talk to hippies. That's not the point. I'm talk to idealistic people. Talk to people who. When was the last really time you were in America, Bernard? When was the last time you were in America? Uh, last year, I was there for a couple of months. Did you meet any idealistic people? Oh yes, a lot, a lot. I I probably we live in different. I have but, been to San Francisco. Could, you could live you give in San me some Francisco. examples of people who could lead your educational movement? People you've met in America? I I, I wish you were right. I just don't see it myself. Maybe I'm I, I, excessively I, pessimistic. Uh, yeah, why? Why? Because I think you're trying to um, sharpen the instruments in order to get your your apocalyptic well worldview. Well, but could you give me uh, some examples head. of people you've met who you think could lead this education movement? I mean, if I now, in the U.S. I, I name people, I it would sound somehow ridiculous because you have this asymmetric problem. You have this huge problem, and then I name some individuals. But of course, a lot of people or a movement. I mean, okay, not necessarily individuals, but initiatives, organizations. I, I would say that a lot of people thinking about this problem have understood what is at stake. Actually, if you talk to people, you mentioned him, like Jay Rosen, trying at the university to teach his students about this, uh, the way. Um, Donald Trump uh, uses the media system or has hacked actually the media system. If you talk to an old fellow um, like Jerry Brown, of course he has understood what is at stake. If you talk to a person being the moderator of the Homebrew Computer Club like Lee Felsenstein, he's fascinated by, fascinated by the idea of an editorial society. But I cannot present you a movement. I just want to warn you about one thing. Pessimism is totally seductive. And what do you do as a pessimist? I'm, I'm this, I would say it's essentially, if we can turn the situation around, the question whether we can turn the situation around is essentially an undecidable question. Who, where is the framework in order to decide? Who knows the future? Nobody does. The, charming thing, the charming point about undecidable question is that we can decide them. So I vote for a strategic optimism. Of course, I know all these horrible examples. Of course, I have experienced a lot of polarization while I was there and seeing people um, uh, talking about not wearing masks and seeing this as an enormous threat to their personal freedom. I found this ridiculous in my view. Of course, I have seen all that, but what's the point in accepting that the game is over? I ask you that question. Well, it's an interesting question, Bernard. Um, I, uh, I hope you're right on your editorial society, maybe right. Uh, certainly people need to re re read your book, Digital Fever, Taming the Big Business of Disinformation. It's just out in translation. It's already a very popular book in Germany. Um, you are in uh, Tübingen at the moment. You're speaking to the lovely town of Tübingen, actually from uh, Martin Buber's old home. 
Uh, what else would you suggest uh, reading, uh, uh, Bernard, in addition to uh, uh, your new, well, your 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 recently translated book, uh, Digital um, Digital Fever? What other books uh, are on your reading list, perhaps to encourage your notion of an editorial society? Not particularly on the editorial society. I just read uh, the book by John Markov, you had him on the show, yes. Whole Earth, about Stuart Brand. I think it's a fascinating book because it complicates the narrative. And uh, he, in my view, shows that there is no direct line from the early hippies to um, the, the, to this um, um, libertarians of the PayPal mafia, so to speak. And he complicates the narratives in the most positive way. I like his book because it shows that the secret of creativity of Silicon Valley is also its diversity. This is a book I would recommend. And I read a book, I have it here. It's but but, but coming book. back on that, I mean, maybe you're yeah. right, but there's also something very sad about Markov's biography of, of Brand, of a man who's broken, who, who, who in many ways has failed to no. realize his dream, um, and man who I, I get the sense is deeply disappointed. But, you know, maybe that's another my rather pessimistic view of reading Markov. But anyway, go on. Yeah, I, I don't, I, I don't uh, see it that way. I see, um, I found this book of John Markov so fascinating because it can be seen as an intellectual tool in itself, how to lead an interesting intellectual life. And you can draw a lot of messages from uh, this book, so to speak. Yeah, the second book I would recommend, I think it's one of the best book about death and dying. It's written by a Buddhist uh, teacher, Frank Ostasiewski, founder of the Zen Hospice in mm. Read, San Francisco. Uh, put it up again, Bernard. Let's look at the cover. Let's just remind yeah. ourselves of the book. That's uh, The Five Invitations. Uh, yeah. and, 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 and put the book slightly higher so I can see the author's name. Yes, he's called uh, Frank, Frank Ostasiewski. Uh, a guy also... Ostaseski. yes. A guy Very also living in the houseboat area where it all started with the well and where all these people were coming together. And he writes about death and dying from a Buddhist perspective. And I found it interesting to read his book now because I think probably, I probably you also you have, have um, thought this through already, but I think we have not really thought enough about the presence of death due to the coronavirus. What does it mean if millions of people have died, more than a million in the United States? How has our perception of death and dying changed? And he was very much um, engaged during the times of the AIDS epidemic in San Francisco. And there the death was, or the dying and the suffering was totally present. It was close. And if you think the situation we had now in the last years, people or death and dying was totally mediated in a sense. Was uh, uh, It was an experience of uh, a virtual death. People were kissing sometimes even the tablets in order to say goodbye to their beloved ones. And I'm reading this book, which has has been on the market for a couple of years, in order to contrast the stories of a direct experience of death to compare it what we have experienced now during the corona crisis and what we probably did not fully understand in my view so that's the second book i can mention 
um, yeah, 